We have the pleasure of having today uh, on our podcast, Elizabeth Barrett, who's the host of a radio show called The Reluctant Therapist. Elizabeth, in addition to being a psychotherapist, is a wife, mother, grandmother, which I cannot believe because she looks, by the way, like she could be my sister. Uh, <laughs> and she is a lecturer in the psychology and child development department at Cal Poly Tech State University in the lovely San Luis Obispo, California. And she does uh, mental health coaching and speaking uh, for personal growth, family life, and relationship issues. She did her studies with a focus in depth psychology, utilizing dream work, the arts, and ancient wisdom to address the struggles experienced in our complex modern lives. I am so excited to welcome you, Elizabeth, to our, this conversation today. Thanks and welcome to the kitchen floor. Thank you. I love the kitchen floor. It's a comfortable <laughs> place to be. <laughs> So we really just kind of wanted to start off today by just kind of opening up the floor so you can just share a little bit about your background, because I love that you go by the reluctant therapist. Why is that? So I've been practicing for about 25 years. When I went to get my master's, I my undergraduate degree is in communications from UC Santa Barbara, and my original love was sports casting. That's what I thought I would do, but I met my now husband of almost 40 years when I was 19. So my path quickly verged away from being a sportscaster and I got married and we had a child and we set up a house and I was happily doing my thing. And then all of a sudden things weren't so happy. And I ended up getting my master's from Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, which is a depth psychology based kind of union based program more because I was home full-time raising my family and I wanted to do something that felt stimulating. And I was curious as to why, which I think a lot of us are, why I was the way I was. Why did I respond the way I did? But I had no intention of becoming a therapist. I just was really wanting to learn more about life. And through the process of doing my master's program, I ended up doing my internship at a place called the Parent Support Center. And I loved the work, and so I ventured after my master's degree and did my 3,000 hours, and it was time to get licensed, and it just kind of all kept unfolding. And it's part of my profession in working with families. What I started to recognize quickly was that those who had the least access to resources or who were most embroiled in well-intentioned resources tended to be most highly diagnosed and treated with medications. And I started to get really uncomfortable with every time a child had issues at school, uh, their parents were called in and they're instantly being diagnosed with ADHD. And the school was kind of pressuring these parents to put their kids on medications. And as a, as a psychotherapist, especially with a depth background, this didn't sit with me. It wasn't right. And I ended up getting in consistent head-to-head -head battles with the county mental health services and the school districts about their policy of diagnosing and pathologizing what I saw as normal childhood behaviors and normal uh, responses to being in a low socioeconomic position or not accessing resources. I saw these as normal responses, but the medical industry in my community kept pathologizing these people as being mentally ill. And so hence the birth of the reluctant therapist, because I was mortified by my profession and I was terrified to see that what I had learned in my master's program 
about how mental health works, how mental wellness works, and how the psyche works, was being pushed aside for this full embrace of this medical model of dealing with mental health as a medical illness. And unfortunately, over the course of the 20 years that I've been trying to raise these alarms, we've even gotten more steeped into this belief that mental illness is a biological issue. And we've probably lost millions of people who were brilliant in their own way, but have been medicated or falsely diagnosed or continuously mismanaged by mental health professionals because the actual work these well-intentioned professionals are doing is misguided. And that was probably more than you needed to hear, but that's that's the shortest version of why the reluctant therapist came to me. And the reason I do the radio show is because 10 years ago, I started to really feel guilty about charging people to come talk to me and help improve their lives. And I thought, this can't really be good. This isn't right, that it's a privileged thing to be able to get mental health care. And so I went to my public radio station. I said, hey, I'd like to give what I know away for free. What do you think? And the program director said, I don't know. Do you think it'll be good? And I said, I don't know. And (laughs) we just kind of leap of faith went in there. And it's actually been incredibly satisfying. And I've been able to give away what I know for 10 years to people who want to access it. And we podcast and I have people email me from all over who really resonate with this kind of counter message to our modern medical mental health industrial complex. What an amazing contribution and just like such a great story of your own personal path, your professional path, but like how it's all come around and just just so commendable that you're so inspired to give this away. And it's such a wonderful resource that's available to people who can just tune in to your show. And today we wanted to revisit some of the common issues that are typically diagnosed in mental health profession. And so we're curious to have a professional kind of talk about some of the modalities that are helping people navigate mental health today. So part of the reason why we launched Oyana was to find a way to address the very issues that range from depression, anxiety, bipolar syndrome, and sleep disorders, among many. Given that you have a rather contrarian outlook when it comes to counseling of all, I'm very intrigued as to how you generally approach these particular issues. I want to put bipolar on the table, if that's okay. And because anxiety and depression um, are the most commonly diagnosed and the most common issues that bring people into counseling. Bipolar disorder is not, you know, it's very rare. And there's a whole nother story about that. I'm going to focus on the depression and anxiety, which seem to be the most common. And people would argue that, you know, sleep disorders, picking, OCD are all under the spectrum of anxiety disorders. Anxieties are absolutely the most common. And one of the things that I think is important to talk about is how is it we view, what is the lens we use to view anxiety and depression? Do we view them as medical issues, biological issues that are making us sick that mean we need to go to a doctor to get a diagnosis and some sort of medical treatment? Or do we look at anxiety and depression as some sort of brilliant message, some brilliant response from our psyche trying to alert us to issues that we need to address? That makes so much sense. I mean, just from what I've read and from my own personal experience, that is 
so much more of what has resonated with me and my own diagnoses and then also in my own treatment. It was the breakthroughs that I had were certainly when the latter approach was taken and that it was, these are signals your body is giving you because there are things that have been unaddressed throughout your personal history. So let's figure out what those are and unpack that in a way that will allow your body to move out of a depressed or anxious state. And then you get back to whatever normal is for you. Exactly. So When you look at the treatments we currently have for depression and anxiety, they aren't healing treatments. They only numb the symptoms, especially antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. They are not healing medications. And that's really important to understand because people are going in to get help to alleviate these symptoms, but they're not getting any work that really addresses what drives the symptoms. Now, some people do if they have great insurance or depending on which clinician they go to see, because all clinicians have different training and backgrounds. We may have the same letters after our name, but where we got our education, what that modality was or what that lens was, will change how we perceive depression, anxiety, and how many years ago we went to school. Because current universities who are doing MFT trainings, LMFT trainings, are really focused on CBT, cognitive behavioral therapies, short-term brief therapies, which don't go in depth into what would be driving depression, anxiety. They just deal with what the person comes in and says they're feeling and gives them tools to not feel that way. So they are not healing modalities. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that's something that it's a either a misconception or just a lack of a, awareness that people have, particularly if they're new to looking into therapy. And this is why it's so critical for everyone to do their research and make sure that they're finding the right therapist for them and somebody who is taking the approach that is looking at this holistic model, because it's so easy to get led down that pathway of medicating. And that's just never ending. You're signing up to become a lifelong revenue stream is what that is. That's very cynical, (laughs) but it resonates with me as a therapist because yes, you saw a shift in the medical mental health industry when managed care stepped in and started realizing that with these medications uh, that big pharma was starting to produce, there was money to be made and it would shorten up the amount of time people got therapy. And prior to the 1980s, insurance companies just paid for therapy. They didn't really question the plans. You know, there was kind of an endless amount of time you could see a therapist. So that's why psychoanalysis, you know, and long-term talk therapies were really able to dig in. Now, the whole another conversation is the ways that those who really were not practicing talk therapy and psychoanalysis well kind of screwed that up for good clinicians and why big pharma and managed care were able to kind of co-op the world of mental health because they needed to streamline the work that people were doing and they wanted to have practices that they could have medical quantitative results, substantial results so that they could determine if they worked. So it was kind of this cluster, perfect storm that happened in the 80s at the same time with medications and managed care and mental health clinicians that weren't doing great work and weren't regulated. And so it set up this perfect storm to create an industry that's really about diagnosing people, getting them ingrained in some sort of belief that they are sick 
because you have to believe you're sick in order to buy into the treatments. And now you've got epidemic levels of people who identify as being mentally ill. They own it as if it's their identity. And that perpetrates this ongoing poor care and treatment that people are receiving. That is a travesty. I mean, there's so many different directions that we could go. And I am always a fan of talking about, you know, holding the pharmaceutical industrial complex accountable for the the ills of our medical system these days. But can you talk a little bit about the types of modalities that you use and then some of the other things that you've seen in terms of efficacy across the spectrum of approaches? Absolutely. And I do want to make sure that I say this because I don't want this not to be said, that in 1% of the cases, 1%, people need to have medications in order to have any quality of life. So I want to make sure that I assert that, that I am not a a completely anti-medications proponent. But I will say that's 1%. And we medicate 14% of the people who come in for treatment. So you have 13% of our population on medications that should not be prescribed. And that's not just my opinion. The American Psychological Association and Psychiatric Association have in conventions over the last five years come out themselves and said, we have overdiagnosed and prescribed. So I just, I really want to make sure that that's said, because I don't want it to sound like I have gone rogue out of the mental health profession. But no, I, I hear you. I hear you. And I, I get that. And thank you for pointing that out. Those are some critical facts and really important for our audience to know. Yes. So having said that, because I have a depth psychology background, if you don't know what that is, it's a lens through which we look at what is wellness and what works. And the idea of depth psychology is that we have to understand that our bodies respond symptomatically to situational experiences, traumas, grief, loss. And if we don't have the capacity or the tools to process what we're experiencing, it lands somewhere in our body uh, in a place that we really can't access with words. It becomes unconscious material and it starts to present itself in symptoms like anxiety, depression, OCD. Some people would argue, and Eric might find this interesting, that bipolar disorder was really catapulted into our conversation because people were diagnosed with depression and given antidepressants. And then that triggered mania responses, which then all of a sudden they were determined to be bipolar. Deb psychologists would say, this has nothing to do with you being mentally ill but your response is your psyche desperately trying to alert you to something that you need to address. So either by using dream work, which I mentioned earlier, but I have to say that my favorite modalities right now are art and expressive arts therapy. I think they're the most effective. I think that they're the most powerful. They tap into the unconscious in really profound ways. And then I also really utilizing things like equine therapy, surf therapy, forest bathing. And I'm willing to talk at length at all those, but I just want to throw that out that that's where I see real progress and healing taking place for people. And then the reemergence of psychoanalysis, which is long-term work to access the unconscious and tap into those stories and narratives that we're playing out that we don't even recognize, which you'll see in intergenerational traumas that are passed along. You know, you might be experiencing symptoms of something that happened to your grandparents. um, And that really can only be tapped into through more in-depth work. 
how much pushback yeah. are you witnessing against these forms of therapy? It depends on who's paying for them. The insurance company is going to push back because they only want to pay for those modalities that they have experiential data on. They have you know, the data that it works. So that's why we always fall back on cognitive behavioral therapy because you can measure improvements in people. So that's really the only pushback. There's no pushback from the people who do equine therapy or expressive arts therapy because you don't run a risk of further damaging the person. And that's where we really have not held mental health treatment accountable enough is that you run the risk of doing more harm when you start medicating or doing CBT and just kind of addressing the symptoms, but not really digging in and helping someone unlearn or release toxicities or pathologies that have been really harming them for years. You know, eating disorders are part of the response to a narrative that harms women. And most people look at someone with an eating disorder saying that young lady or that young man is sick. There's something wrong with them. But if you step back even one foot, you go, wow, they grew up in a society that has constantly told them that if they're not thin or, you know, fit, that they're unworthy of living. And that is horrific. I want to hear more about art therapy and art expression therapy. That sounds fascinating. So expressive arts are on the umbrella that incorporate art therapy, which can be drawing, collaging, using clay, building, you know, doing things with your hands. So it's a very broad work. Art therapists come in different forms. There are art therapists who are artists who go to school and they are trained to use their art background to help someone come in and process through sketching, drawing, their emotions, their feelings. They'll try to put color and movement to parts of their bodies where they are struggling. And so just to give an example, let's say you have chronic belly pain and you've been to the doctor and they keep giving you things for heartburn and nothing really helps, which is chronic belly pain. An arts therapist might say, here's a huge pad of paper. Draw what this looks like, this pain. What does it look like for you? And the person might flail out on the kitchen floor, which is where a lot of people end up doing a lot of their healing and just sketching with colors and maybe finger painting what this feeling in their body is. And I don't want to make it seem like it's a quick fix, but over the course of being able to move this out through art and then talk about what they've felt as they were doing the art and what they see in front of them, that helps to move what is blocked in this chakra in the middle of our heart or in the middle of our truth. And it can open it up where the energy moves through and people now have no chronic belly pain after 30 years. How would you describe the rate of growth and adoption in art therapy in the U.S.? It has been around for a long time. Actually, Carl Rogers' daughter, if you know who Carl Rogers is, he started humanistic psychotherapy and his daughter brought play therapy and arts therapy into the modern language probably in the late 50s, early 60s, and it's just kind of grown. People who are familiar with therapy in general will say there's a lot of licensed art therapists. There's a whole organization of art therapists. So it's been around and licensed for many years. And it's a separate license than just being an MFT. You have to get your master's, but you also have to get a master's certification in art therapy as well. So it's a very well-researched and very well-documented modality. I had no idea it had been around that long. I mean, I had heard about it in the 90s, 
But even then, I thought it was something that probably didn't go further back than like the 70s. But to hear that it's rooted in something going back as far as the 50s, that's amazing that it hasn't had a higher adoption rate. But then again, when I think about like who's driving that bus, um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It's always follow the money. If you think of depth psychology work, what was the way we dealt with mental health prior to any sort of formal mental health practices? You know, we kind of look at Freud as the beginning of our modern day talk therapy. But if you think about how we dealt with mental health before that, that's where you start seeing how people drew on things like mythology and the arts for healing, you know, cave paintings and dance and expressive dramatic arts. That's how people processed and moved their emotional landscape prior to what we look at as a very patriarchal mode of mind control that started with Freud telling women that they were hysterical because they were weak and not because they were you know, encapsulated in the 1800s and had no rights. It's almost as if we took our inherent capacity to heal and handed it over to this very narrow understanding of the human psyche and mental health. Well, and isn't Jungian psychology is based and rooted in looking at the mythology and the archetype? Mm -hmm. And that seems to connect much more to the depth psychology platform that you talk about, just because it's looking at like what we're rooted in individually and then how that fits or doesn't within the context of society. Yes. And that's what I love about Jung's work and, and depth psychology is that it normalizes the human experience. We talk about these archetypes. And so when someone comes in and they're struggling, let's say with anxiety or depression or whatever it is, and you might start asking them, you know, when was the time you actually felt well? Or, you know, what happened prior to you having these symptoms? And they start talking about their life. And generally, it's the mythology, the myth that we're living, the narrative that we've bought into as being the truth about us is what drives our mental health. So if you had something happen where, um, you were sexually assaulted. And in order to cope with that experience, you start telling the story to yourself that I asked for it, or I was dirty, or I was broken. And then your body holds that truth. And the way you then interact with the world is from that lens and perspective. And Deb Psychology says, if we look at our mythologies, there are ancient Greek stories that address sexual assault or relationships or marriage, that all of us as a collective are reliving patterns of behavior that have been lived by humans since the beginning of time. And when someone can realize that they aren't solely broken, or they aren't just weird, or the odd man out, that they actually are part of a whole collective unconscious experience that we all through generations have experienced, they start to feel less isolated and more okay. Wow. I mean, that just makes so much sense. Like, how could anybody hear that and not say, yeah, that's the way? And you referenced this earlier when you said treating people who are experiencing things that were related to something that their grandparents or great-grandparents yes. went through. This whole concept of epigenetics, like that just blows my mind, like how that gets passed down. Can you talk a little bit more about that too? Well, so this is actually out of the depth and into more modern Carl Rogers, Rogerian therapy, humanistic therapy, that we all repeat the patterns of our ancestors of generations, unless we have some reason to stop and question why we're doing this. 
But people think that psychotherapy in some ways they're magic. You know, psychotherapists somehow can read someone's mind. But really what we've learned is that if I can get a good understanding of your history, we call it a genogram. If I can get a good understanding of your three generations behind you and what their experiences were, what their mental health was, what their drug and alcohol use was, their marriages, if they succeeded, I can pretty much predict what you struggle with today. Because we relive our generational patterns over and over, like Groundhog Day. And what's interesting is that they found when you experience a trauma, it can alter your DNA in such a way that you pass that DNA down to the next generation so that they're carrying that trauma-damaged DNA with them into their lives. I say that I don't want it to feel overwhelming. To me, it's like the great news because when we understand that we as individuals are not broken people, but we actually are brilliantly developed. Our psyche is masterfully always trying to cope with and adjust to what it is dealing with. If we looked at each other like that, then we would stop seeing each other as sick and we'd start to step back and go, I think the culture I live in is sick. I believe the story I've been told to live is sick. I believe that what's expected of me is sick. I am fine, but I need to address all of the illness in my narrative that is causing these symptoms in me. That's a fundamental shift in how we look at mental health. That is magnificent. And it seems like something that should be like, turn the page on that today across the board for every therapist in school right now and anyone working in the profession, like so critical to embrace that because this feeling that you mentioned that people have of feeling broken or like there's something wrong with you, like that causes shame and just makes it worse. And that feeling of acknowledging that it's just that we are all connected and that there is nothing wrong with us and that we can heal and find our way back to a place of balance. So important. And how we define what healed is, is huge as well, because the DSM is trying to determine what is well and what is not well all the time. But it doesn't talk at all about what healing looks like. What is normal? We don't have any defined normal in this culture. We just have a huge book that tells us all the ways we're abnormal. And that into itself should be terrifying. That's ass backwards. <laughs> yes. You have 512 ways to tell me how I'm not okay, but zero ways to tell me how to know I am okay, except for this. If I can get up, eat a power shake, go for a jog, go to my Google cubicle, and then commute home in two hours of traffic and not be angry or lose my mind, then that's normal. Because if you look at how we define what is normal right now, it's an abnormal way to live. We're trying to get human beings to adapt to a way of living that was never meant to be the human experience. Commuting in traffic, sitting in a cubicle, being online for hours at a time, you know, not having intimate contact with people, not knowing how to make intimate relationships that are fulfilling and meaningful. We are we are asking human beings to be robots. And when people can't adjust or, or put up with it any longer, when they lose it and go into depression or develop bipolar disorder or OCD, we tell them they're sick. So where do we go from here? Because it, to me, it sounds like um, there's got to be an entire revolution, right? Yes. Right. So, I mean, I'd love to know, and I know this is a rather existential question, but 
it seems as though the answer has to be there, right? How do we go? How do we go about getting better, right? The amelioration of society. How do we get there? Okay, here's my big answer, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Individuals, how and and what's beautiful about what's happening right now in this terrifying world that we're in is that we're given this opportunity to step back and say, do I want to go back to what was my life before this? Because I think if everyone took a step or two back and looked at what their lives were, what they were trying to achieve, even if the American dream itself is not just a patriarchal corporate funded lie that gets people to basically live in servitude their entire life paying for debt, right? So their student debt and their mortgage. If people were to step back and look behind the curtain and realize that the whole the whole thing that we've bought into is what's driving mental illness, then people would take an opportunity to say, how do I recalibrate my life that suits my mental health? Because some people actually thrive on the intensity of the work life and, you know, being in there and burning 12 hours a day. Some people thrive in that. But for the people it doesn't work for, to be able to step outside and say, what does work for me? What is that story? That's where alternative mental health practices are so helpful. How do we artistically create a new reality? Are you willing to move to a place like Iowa where you could live you know, very inexpensively and create art and have friendships and intimate relationships and have sex because you're not so tired every night that you've forgotten how to do it. You know, what's revolutionary is that individuals have to take back their power and stop buying into this one narrow corporate story of what is the American dream. That's the big pull. The smaller pull is Find communities of like-minded people, take up surfing, take up equine work, you know, find ways of expressing yourselves creatively so that you can keep moving energy through and accept that your temperament is who you are and to embrace it and create a life that supports your mental health and well-being and the mental health and well-being of those you're responsible for. Because that's our only real job. And if your life isn't supporting it, then it's on you to change your life. A therapist is only going to be able to bandage you up and get you back to your cubicle. But you as an individual have to determine what is the story or the myth that I am going to follow as my truth. You know, what you said there to me is like, that's the goal. You just defined what success is for every adult. Mm -hmm. And it could be that simple if we would allow ourselves to do that. And I think so many people get caught up in the looking good and comparative game that they forget that the people that typically we admire the most, they're the people who have done exactly that, figured out what is right for them. How can they thrive? They've come to a level of of self-acceptance and nurturing and figured out ways to build the life that works for them and that nurtures their own sense of well-being. You just encapsulated it. Mental health is not rocket science and it's not a medical issue. It's a life issue. It's about what we decide to do with our life. Do we live to work or do we work to support our living? It is simple. And I think that's what frustrates people so much is that we think healing should be really hard and I need lots of therapy or I need lots of medications. I'm so sick and I have so many ways I'm broken and my childhood was horrible. 
well, what if someone just magically said, you're just perfect and beautiful the way you are? And that's really where healing comes. It's it's in an instant of saying, I'm not broken. I just am a culmination of all of the experiences I've had in my life. And I've adapted to and developed a temperament that is unique to me. And sometimes I feel anxious and sometimes I feel depressed. And sometimes I go for a year where I have no will to live, but then something opens and I'm in awe of life again. If we told every child that from the time they were young, hey, you know, normal's going to be, you feel okay. Stop telling children that their goal is to be happy because you're setting them up to fail. No one feels happy all the time. And if we're pursuing that endlessly, we are just going to be miserable. But if you told people from a young age, you're probably going to feel kind of crappy most of the time. And sometimes you'll feel great. And that's the moments you live for. But then that'll go away. And sometimes you'll feel so awful you can't function. And that'll go away too. If we taught children to trust the flow of their emotional experience, we wouldn't have a mental health crisis in this world. Powerful. Well, I think I'm going to be joining Clotilde surfing. She does that quite religiously. I think I might have to give it a try sometime soon then. So Eric, the good news is if you're looking for modalities that have been researched, surf therapy with PTSD work with veterans has been highly researched and has great success rates. So yeah, I'm all about surf therapy because they have been able to really show growth and healing for people who take it on. And it's almost like a spiritual practice. And we didn't touch on that, but you know, a lot of people would argue that when we kind of bought into Freud's talk therapy, we rejected or moved the spiritual longing out of the conversation. And it was really about our material goals and, you know, it got lost. But there's a religious piece to surfing, but you can also find it on backpacking. They've also done research showing that soldiers coming back and going out on these kind of extended outdoor wilderness experiences back in the natural world can heal. And we also should talk about farm work, where we send people who struggle with mental health issues, bipolar disorder, psychotic breaks into these work farms where they're out in the field with their hands in the dirt for weeks on end, and it heals what is broken in their psyche. That makes so much sense because you give people an opportunity to to do something with their hands, with their body, to connect with nature in a way that they're probably not used to connecting. And also it puts them in rhythm with nature, which I think I'm just a big proponent of. There's a great quote that I have no idea who said it, but it's learn to move at the pace of nature. Yes. And, you know, I used to always be Susie on the go all the time, doing 50 things at once. And that is not productive or healthy in any way, shape, or form. And so when I am in the ocean or when I am out in nature, it just gives me a chance to just stop and be and look and acknowledge the path and the pattern of nature that it sets up like a flow that is undeniable. And it just is so much more natural and just feels amazing. And you just described mental wellness, finding yourself in a flow where you're so engaged in what you're doing, so in awe of the place you are, that you feel safe 
you feel calm. It slows down your fight, flight, or freeze response, which is really what drives depression and anxiety is being in this chronic state of stress overload, which creates a constant state of anxiety, which prevents us from sleeping. And it's really about resetting our circadian rhythms. It's resetting our natural rhythms, like you said. And that's what surfing, running, hiking, swimming, you know, we talk a lot about meditating. We know meditation is incredibly powerful, but there's a lot of people who don't have the discipline or don't have the temperament to meditate well. And so they kind of give it up, but you know, you can do movement meditative things where you get so into the actions that you lose yourself. And that's when we really reconnect. We're not talking about healing something broken. We're talking about reconnecting to our source, which connects us to the whole energy of the world around us. And then we don't feel so fragmented and frantic. I have two friends who have been looking for therapists. I don't know if you're accepting patients, but I definitely (laughs) want to send them your info (laughs) because this is, you are preaching everything they need to hear. It resonates. Like I can just feel everything you're saying and my body is just like, yes, yes, yes. And that's how I knew that I was moving in the right direction as well, because everything started to make sense that I had talked to therapists and I have seen people do work. But when I started doing work with Pacifica from this depth perspective and looking at narratives and looking at our connection to the collective, like you, I felt like everything inside me made sense that this was something I got. It never made sense to me that we would go in you know, with a medication to try to heal a psychic wound. It didn't make sense, but this pulls everything together for me. Again, there's a lot of ways because not everyone's going to surf, but equine therapy and working with horses, I've seen incredible growth. And I don't do all these things, but I know people who do that I send, you know, I, I try to help people connect with the path that's going to help them feel whole. And one other thing I want to add too is that when I look at mental health and healing, I'm not talking about trying to close up, you know, this wound or heal it like it never happened, because we have to look at our life story as being all the things that push us to where we are today. And Jung said that our wound is our entrance into our humanity, and that most people can only go as deep as their childhood wound was. So for some people, the more trauma or wounding or grief that they experienced and were able to sit with, the more capacity they have to have compassion and love for themselves and others. So it's a different way, again, at looking at our lives and not trying to run from grief or trauma or sadness, but to walk towards it and say, what can I learn from you? How can I grow and be stronger and more alive by facing you? Is there a place in the world where you think that they have adapted more so than we have in the U.S., such a point of view? Well, yeah. If you look at countries, Bhutan, where they actually have a government mandate that they work from a place of joy, that it's almost as if they talk about the well-being and quality of life of their citizens as being primary and that everything else works to support that. That's a whole cultural story that we're talking about. You know, that's revolutionary. If you look at the story we live in the US or in Europe or more the westernized cultures, we're not citizens, we're consumers. We're treated as if how much we produce and how much we consume is the sum total of our worth. 
And so that story in itself is wounding. So we could have all the best modalities in the world, but if people continue believing that one story, even the modalities aren't going to be able to overcome kind of that Western ideal of what life is supposed to look like. But we've seen places like in India, actually in some of the Nordic countries in Finland and Sweden, they've been able to take people who have schizophrenia or psychotic breaks or some with bipolar disorders. And what they've done is they do family healing where they, instead of removing the individual from their home and putting them in institutions, which is what we tend to do, right? We take our most severely mentally ill and we institutionalize them. But they've found that if they bring people back to their families and they surround them with the grounding of aunts and uncles and cousins, the collective, that it helps to kind of pull them back into themselves and give them kind of a sense of oneness And that months of time being embraced by the family brings people around. Native American traditions are the same way when someone has some sort of what we would call psychotic break or they're out of sync with their natural world. They embrace them and bring them into the community and they dance and they care for and they feed them and they nurture and they talk to them until the person comes back to whole. But in our Western culture, that's all about individuals and individualization. The individual is who we see as sick. They're the patient. And so we isolate and separate them and wonder why they don't get better instead of embracing and doubling down on being with them. And not to go off in too far of a direction, but if you want to know how we heal people, we have to have the capacity to have the time to care give, to spend time nurturing and being with someone, but we've created a society that forces us to work these insane hours. So when someone has a child or experiences a death, we don't have the community bandwidth to surround them and hold them until they heal. And so we send them to therapy or we get the medications because we collectively have created a society that does not have the time or capacity or wherewithal to literally just come to their home and surround them until they're whole. Wow. All right, y'all. I'm moving back to Africa after, after this podcast. <laughs> I can understand why, because that's when you see collectivist cultures, that it's more about the whole and not the individual, you see mental health that is better. And that just makes sense. So I love that you mentioned Bhutan and the other Nordic countries where they really do prioritize mental health in a completely different way. And I really hope that we can find a path to making shifts like that in this country, because if we don't, there is really little hope for things to get on any kind of a track that is realistic for human progress. And it sounds a bit evident. There's a dichotomy in this conversation in that what you are proposing, Elizabeth, is currently being adapted by people in this country you see a, a growing movement of it happening. And the irony is that where I'm from overseas, we are adopting Western trust and values. And it's just a very interesting movement that I've seen grow. So for me, it would be what seems to be a bit obvious, having been here for about 25 years, but it's taken me that long to really fully appreciate and embrace the fact that back home, we were never wrong about this. Mm -hmm. um, there's something called animism. Animism is the practice of believing in the environment, the trees, the water, the sea. And when we were colonized back in the day, you had to adopt other traits. And healing, luckily for us, those animist practices never really left us. 
And I'm so happy that we still practice them. And what you are suggesting does help. And I'm really hoping that this country can make more space for it. I resonate with what you're saying here because that is the work. We have to redefine what is normal and what it is to be a human being. And until we do that, we're going to continue down this path towards really trying to make their human experience as one of a robot, an unfeeling person. But if we can help people return to their ancestral stories and to redefine their humanity and to take charge of what is normal for them, that shifts mental health. We have to stop leaning on experts and things like the DSM and the medical model to heal us and to continue saying to people, it may reduce your symptoms, but it does not bring you to human. Mike, drop. I'd be remiss if I didn't also give you a chance to promote your own podcast and how do people find you? My podcast is called A Conversation with the Reluctant Therapist. So you can find it on Apple Podcast or iTunes. My name's Elizabeth Barrett. And also I do my show live Tuesdays at two at kcbx.org. If you'd like to stream it, kcbx.org, Tuesdays from two to three, or you can podcast. And I would love to grow my community and get more people having conversations in this direction. Thank you so much for being with us today. And please, please come back. And and yes, I have a few people I will be sending you away. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Anytime. 